What does a sociolinguistics consultant do? And how can Bible translators continue to think carefully about language vitality? What kinds of questions should you ask to quickly assess the status of a language? For answers to all this and more, we have Scott Smith as our guest today. I'm Andrew Case. This is Working for the Word. And get ready for a deep dive into the world of sociolinguistics. Scott Smith and I met back in 2011 when he convinced me to join him and his team over in Equatorial Guinea in Central Africa. He and his wife, Margaret, have been working there on and off for decades, and they are some of the most generous people I know. Fun fact, they built their home out of shipping containers right on the beach in Equatorial Guinea. And I've spent a lot of time out there visiting with them over the years, drinking coconuts and enjoying the warm ocean water. Sometimes Scott and I even had meetings while floating on the waves. Scott is also known for his many jokes, playing with words in multiple languages, and for enjoying being a polyglot in general. So let's get into the interview and see what we can learn from him. My wife and I are both long-term uh, in Bible translation because both of us were born in the jungles of South America to Wycliffe uh, families. My folks worked in Peru before I was born, and then they went to Ecuador uh, three years after the five missionaries were killed uh, by the Alcohuaudanis. And my dad flew in Ecuador for 10 years, 11 years, uh, and then Margaret's folks were doing a translation on a, a tributary of the Amazon in Brazil, a language called Apalai. Uh, so she was born in Brazil. I was born in Ecuador. And our kids were born, all of them, in Spain. We have three kids who were all born in Spain. And then uh, we joined Wycliffe in 1987. So I guess that was 35 years ago. We worked in Spain for um, the first 11 years uh, helping to get a Wycliffe organization started in Spain. And then we moved to Equatorial Guinea in Africa, and we worked there for about 20 years and also in Bible translation. And then uh, we are now back in Spain, but still assigned one-fourth in Equatorial Guinea. So we've got a split assignment between Spain and Africa. And so my background in Bible translation, um, my undergrad was in Greek, and then I did a, a biblical studies degree in seminary and did doctoral coursework in linguistics in Spain and eventually in the course of our work became a translation consultant and a uh, senior sociolinguistic consultant with SIL. So uh, we've been working with SIL for 35 years. Yeah, a lot of it for me has been in the area, more in the area of training because we've been training in the master's program here in Spain since 2005. We did um, non-accredited training, some in Africa. We did have done some in Cameroon, and then I taught some linguistics for three years in the university, in a Christian university in the U.S. when our kids were getting started with college. So, so a lot of what I've been doing has been related more to training. Yeah, and while we're at it, tell us a little bit uh, about Proel so that people who don't know about the, the master's program there can hear a little bit. Yeah, uh, PROEL is the acronym for uh, Promotora Española de Lingüística, Spanish Promoter of Linguistics, and PROEL is also uh, unofficially re referred to as Wycliffe Spain. It's part of the Wycliffe family of organizations. And since 2005, we've had uh, a master's program uh, in applied linguistics in translation and literacy and we have had graduates now in, in since 2005 we've had graduates from 20 different nations and it's a great program for somebody the whole programs in Spanish it's a great program for somebody who has an undergrad degree wants a master's and is fluent in Spanish 
It's actually proven to be a good program for people who are fluent in Portuguese because we've had Portuguese speakers. Um, we've had uh, 14, 15 Portuguese speakers from Brazil or Guinea-Bissau in Africa that have come through the program, and they they start the program speaking Portuguese, and I'm lecturing in Spanish, and they're answering in Portuguese, but then they, they actually learn. It's These languages are pretty close, so they, they can understand, and they read, and, they, and then they, can, they, they actually are learning Spanish as they go along and get very good in Spanish by the time they're done. So you mentioned you're a sociolinguistics consultant, and so let's jump into that. What is sociolinguistics, for those who aren't familiar, and what does a sociolinguistic consultant do? Uh, sociolinguistics is the overlap of uh, linguistics and sociology, that is, language in society. If you'd make a Venn diagram with two circles and bring them together to overlap, and if one of those circles is linguistics and one of those circles is sociology, then you have this overlap in the middle where every society in in human existence uses language. And the ways in which society uses language, that whole overlap in the middle is called sociolinguistics. It's a, it's a branch of applied linguistics or a branch of applied sociology. And uh, within sociolinguistics, we talk about... Pretty much we talk about two different levels. There's a, a higher level that's focusing on the society as a whole, that is language use by communities and, and nations and, and, and ethnic groups. And um, if you're talking about that level, that's called macro sociolinguistics. And then there's a lower level where you're talking about societal factors that affect the way that people speak, that change language, that affect language. And that could be that affects individuals or it could be affects groups, uh, age groups or dialect, ge geographical areas or factors like gender. There's a lot of different factors that affect the way that people speak. And, and that whole field of study is, is basically called micro sociolinguistics. We're not as interested in that as we are mm -hmm. The macro sociolinguistics, which is the area where I tend to work and where we tend to work more in Bible translation, is looking at the society as a whole. You can be talking about a, a language community, but uh, there's a distinct. I'll tell the distinction between a language community and a speech community because our unit of work in sociolinguistics is a speech community. So a language community is made up of every person around the world who speaks a particular language. If I go to Australia, which I did uh, a month and a half ago, and if I meet somebody there who speaks Spanish in the airport, I've never met this person, we're halfway around the world, but we can immediately relate using the same language because we're part of the same language community. But a speech, com a speech community is not focusing on one language. It's focusing on a group of people who might live on an island and speak all the same language and only one language. They might be a monolingual speech community, but most speech communities are multilingual. They have maybe several languages that are shared within that community. There might be several different ethnic groups that are part of that speech community. So when we talk about working in uh, macro sociolinguistics in, Bible, in the field of Bible translation, we're talking about f working with a spe particular speech community. We're going we're gonna to be talking some today about um, language vitality and levels of language vitality. It's important to realize that that's not a feature of – it's not as much a feature – language vitality is not as much a feature of, of a language community as it is a feature of different speech communities. So the, so the language can be strong in one speech community and it could be very weak in another speech community, the same language. So, so the language can have different levels of vitality depending on which speech communities are using it. Okay. So what kind of things do you get asked to do as a sociolinguistic consultant? I guess even before I get into uh, consultant level work, I would say this, the most common use of sociolinguistics within the field of Bible translation, and we have hundreds of uh, trained members that are using sociolinguistics without being consultants, and that is in the field of language survey. So 
language survey is clearly uh, looking into language and also looking into a community, but it's basically establishing Bible translation needs, whether a language community needs a, needs a translation or needs a revision, or whether they're adequately bilingual, that they have scriptures in another language and they don't need a translation at all, uh, or they need literacy, whatever. So, so the biggest field for uh, sociolinguists to work in the Bible translation realm would be to work as language surveyors. And then um, a big part of that that could be part of the survey and it could come into play later on is, is the whole issue of dialectology, different dialects within a language community. So it's speech variations within a language community. If they can all understand each other, they're probably speaking the same language, but there might be quite a bit of difference between the dialects that they're using. So so yeah. as, as an English speaker, you've talked with people from, you know, maybe next door that you understand fine. But then when you start talking to people from England and from Nigeria and from Australia and New Zealand, you start realizing that there are some wide varieties of dialects among English speakers. And <clears throat> so dialectology is a factor that comes into serious play with uh, Bible translation, because depending on how different those dialects are, it could actually cause people to reject um, a, a, a translation if it's using a dialect that's too far from their own. Yeah. So what sorts of things, maybe give some examples, why would somebody call a sociolinguistic consultant? What kinds of questions would you get asked? Yeah, okay, so um, one one area that uh, is important to take into consideration sociolinguistic factors is when you go to develop an orthography for a language, a writing system for a language, um, it's, it's not just a question of linguistic research and linguistic factors that go into making a good orthography, because for one thing, it, it's not, these are not decisions that should even be made by a linguist or a group of linguists, their decisions that should be made by the speech community or language community, they're going to use that, uh, that, that orthography. But there are a lot of factors in writing your language that, that come into play that, don't, that have more to do with the sociological factors than they do with the linguistic factors, like uh, language attitudes and language policy, the national language policy. In some countries, uh, a language community doesn't have the freedom to just come up with whatever orthography they want because they have maybe a general alphabet or general general a book or a group uh, agreed upon convention of symbols that they have to choose from because maybe the country is trying to unite the different ethnic groups by having uh, mutually readable texts and so they they might want everybody to use the same symbols so orthography development is a big field for at least including some sociolinguists and taking into consideration the social factors and not just the linguistic factors. Um, the other big area, and this is where you get into consultants, uh, needing cons trained consultants, um, language planning and language development um, has been something that traditionally has been at the level of uh, governmental involvement. So, so the, the biggest players historically in language planning and language development have always been governments. But uh, now there are increasing numbers of uh, NGOs, non-governmental organizations like SIL that can work with the community and help them to develop their language. And it's not something that's uh, exclusively the realm of government, although you'd really need to take the government into consideration and the laws and make sure that the, that, that you're not, you know, that you're in line with all the, the current yeah. legislation and all. But so language planning and language development, I would say, are the areas where we work as, uh, as, as sociolinguistic consultants. Gotcha. That's helpful. So how have people in the past evaluated and measured language vitality and planned the future of their language? Because I know this has been something that Wycliffe has been developing over the years. My grandparents, for instance, when they went to Mexico, there was nothing in place with Wycliffe at that point. Um, you had to to do your own survey, basically, and, and figure things out and then figure out where you were going to serve while you were on the field. But um, things have changed a lot since then. So maybe walk us through how those things have grown and 
evolved over the years? Yeah. Uh, I mentioned that until more recently, uh, language planning and language development were something that were sort of within the realm of the government. I would say if we look at, at the case of English, the first big promoters of, ling- of, of English were at the king level in England, uh, Arthur the, uh, Alfred, Alfred the Great in the late 800s, about 100 years after Charlemagne, Alfred the Great promoted English by getting books translated into English. And uh, he himself, actually 500 years before John Wycliffe was the first known Bible translator in English because he translated uh, 50 psalms for a psalter to sing the psalms. And um, so he, he was one who cared about the people being able to use the common language or developing the common language so that it would be a language of education and have some educational materials in it. Then, of course, in, in 1066, you have uh, William the Conqueror comes in from, from France and uh, for the next several hundred, couple hundred years, uh, French is the language of the courts and of the elite and the nobility and, you know, of the power structure in England, which sort of sets English back a ways. And then um, Edward I was the first uh, king of England who had been tutored in English as a child. And then he, he actually steps in and then advocates for English. Uh, for example, when people would go to court, there was prejudice against them or they, they had had a very unfair situation because maybe they went to court and the people who were doing all of the court were doing it all in French. And these people who were being accused of things might not have even understood a thing that was going on because they weren't elite, upper level nobility that spoke French. So Edward I is the one that passed some laws that said that uh, that people had the right to to be defended in English or to un- or to have translation and to understand what accusations were being made against him and stuff like that. So he did a lot as well to promote English. But those are just examples of how it was. There was some advocacy for English, but it was usually on the level of the of the government. Now, when it comes to civilian in involvement in language vitality. Language vitality was not a big issue until uh, our lifetimes, really. It was not something that people uh, tried uh, objectively to measure until uh, the 1990s. In 1991, Joshua Fishman, an American sociolinguist, developed an eight-level scale called GIDS in acronym. It's G-I-D-S. And that's the graded intergenerational disruption scale. It's not a level of vitality as much as it's a level of disruption to vitality. So the higher the level, the worse the disruption is and the lower the vitality is. But so basically it's a backwards, it's an upside down vitality scale, but it is the first scale that measured some de- to some degree that actually objectively measured vitality of languages. Now, when Fishman developed his eight-level GIDS scale, his scale was focusing more on the vital, strong languages. And and so most of his levels uh, are measuring uh, different levels of use by strong, vital languages. Twelve years later, in 2003, UNESCO comes up with their own language vitality scale, and they come up with a six-level scale but UNESCO's interest in doing this in 2003 was the endangered languages. So, so UNESCO took Joshua Fishman's his his eight levels uh, scale. The first six levels of his eight level scale, they just made one of their levels and they called it safe, safe languages. So UNESCO had a six point scale. They had all the safe languages. Then they had four levels of endangerment, and then they had one level of uh, extinct languages. When SIL uh, we, we've been working now for 70 plus years in uh, in language development, and and some SIL linguists in 2010, Paul Lewis and Gary Simons, uh, realized that you had these two scales, kind of competing scales. One was focusing on the safe, healthy languages, and one was focusing on the endangered languages. And we needed a broader scale that would cover all the possibilities in in language. So. They revised uh, Joshua Fishman's uh, GIDS scale, 
they expanded it and they called it expanded graduated or expanded graded intergenerational disruption scale. So it's the same the same eight levels that um, that Joshua Fishman had built in are still in the in the expanded GIDs or the EGIDs, but they added all the levels needed to include the UNESCO levels of endangerment and some other levels that were needed. There was nothing in Joshua Fishman's scale that talked about languages that were official at the international level, but now there are, in, in the United Nations, there are actually six languages that have been declared by the United Nations to be official languages of the United Nations, which means that the United Nations themselves will translate everything that they produce into those six languages. And those are those are the six big languages of the world Chinese is the most spoken language as a as a mother tongue on earth and then Spanish yeah. and then English and Russian and Arabic and interestingly French is one of those six <laughs> French is actually the 18th most spoken language in the world but it's a very powerful language politically because it's part of the fa- part, one of the factors that United Nations went into in deciding what were going to be their official languages were how many nations of the world have these as official languages so French was important enough with 30 some countries in the world or more that speak French but anyway those are um, that's one level that's a whole level of the EGID scale is the, the languages that are official international languages so yeah. so the EGIDs the EGIDs scale that uh, SIL developed by expanding Joshua Fishman's GIDs has uh, 14 levels Depending on what you do with the extinct languages, there's actually two different levels of extinction. We'll talk about that. So, so they have as many as 14 different levels, but they've they've put them into a 10-point scale with some of those 10 points having an A and a B. So, so they've come up with with a 10-point scale that can can very accurately look at any language in the world and determine uh, a level of vitality. Or in this case, the higher the the number, the higher the disruption, the lower the vitality. Yeah. How long does it typically take to evaluate a language on that scale? There are different levels of, of appraisal. There's a rapid appraisal that we can do with just asking a couple of the right questions with multiple choice answers. We'll talk about that a little bit here in, in a minute. Um, okay. But so, so we can work with a community and we can, and we can t- ask some questions and come up with an idea of where their, where their vitality level is or their level of disruption is. But when it comes down to working with a community and, and wanting to do language planning and uh, language development, we actually have to look at the levels of disruption in different, in different areas to get a real good grasp of what their level of vitality is or their level of disruption is, we have to look at uh, the functions of the language, the acquisition of the language, the motivation of the community to use the language, the environment, political and otherwise, around the language, and uh, factors like diglossia, which is uh, when a community speaks two different languages simultaneously with, with different functions. So so there's several different le- uh, areas that we need to look at to get a really in-depth understanding of the true uh, EGID's vitality level of a language, but we can we can get a real good idea with just some a few questions. Okay. Yeah, so let's let's maybe talk about some of those those questions. Okay. Uh, before we do, I should probably mention this. Uh, I was talking about yeah. the the different scales, 91 GIDS, 2003 language UNESCO's language vitality scale that had six levels. Uh, SIL expanded GIDS to 14 levels in in 2010, and and then in 2015 the UNESCO started a a process of revising their language vitality scale, realizing that the six levels they had was just focusing on endangerment. So my understanding is I think they I think they might have a scale now that has as many as 15 levels. So I'm not sure if they're even finished with their work because UNESCO is notoriously slow, but um, I think they're going to come up with something if they haven't already, that is very similar to probably the levels of distinction that are found in, in EGIDs. The first question is, how is the language used? And the four options for answering that, the first option would be it's used between different ethnic groups. This is called vehicular language use because it's a vehicle of communication between different ethnic groups. So in other words, it's not just a 
it's not just a community's language or an ethnic language. It's used as a so what some people might call a trade language or a, yeah. a contact language. So first option, it's used between ethnic groups. Second one, it's used by all ages in the home. The third answer is it's used by some ages in the home as a heritage language, which would imply that they don't use it all the time and exclusively in the home, especially if not all ages use it. Yeah. <laughs> and then the fourth, the fourth answer to that first question would be it's not used. It's no longer used. And then each of those um, questions, each of those answers, depending on what answer they've given, would have a second question. And, and the second question is going to vary depending on what uh, answer they gave to the, first, to the first question. So let's take the first question. If, we, if they said it's used between ethnic groups, then the second question for that group would be, what is the official level of use? What is the official level of use? And that has four answers, four multiple choice answers. A, it's an international official language. That is, we talked about those six languages that UNESCO uses. If it's an international official language, we would start at the bottom of the scale and we'd say they have an EGIT's level of zero. Now, why would we give them a zero when these are the strongest languages in the world? Because we've said, and we would call it an international language. It's zero and it's international language. The reason it's zero is because we said this is not really a, love, a, a scale of vitality. It's a scale of disruption. And, and these languages, Spanish, English, French, Arabic, Russian, Chinese, do not have any disruption. There's, there's nothing that's in the way of these languages. <laughs> So, yeah. so, so the first answer there in that group would be it's, it's an official international language. That's a zero level of disruption. The second answer in that would be it's an official national language. So we look at Finnish, Swedish, German, uh, all these many, many languages that are official, international, or official national languages at the national level. And that would be a, that would be an EGIT's level of one, which means a national official language. And it has very little disruption, but it has a little bit of disruption because, for example, you go to the United Nations. If you speak Spanish, French, Arabic or Chinese, then the United Nations is going to translate for you. But if you speak Finnish or Swedish and you go to the United Nations, while the United Nations is translating into those six languages for anybody that wants that, you as a Finnish person, as a Finnish government, have to pay for your own translation and provide your own translators because you're, you're a national language but not an international language. So that's the level of disruption one. The third option would be um, it's official at the regional level. So that's a level two. Uh, an example of this would be in Spain, we have uh, the Basque language, the Catalan language, the Galician language. These are all official languages in a region of Spain. And so that's a level two. They have a little higher disruption because they might be required. You know, if I walk into Catalonia in Barcelona and order in a restaurant, uh, the law says that I have the right to be served in Catalan. But if I walk into Basque Country or Madrid or somewhere else in order, I don't have that right because they have a higher level of disruption being just a, a regional national language. So they would be a level two regional official language. And then the, the fourth option of that first group is it's not an official language. In other words, it's a trade language between ethnic groups, but it's not official uh, we would give that a level three, and we would call that a vehicular language. That's a language, a vehicle of communication between different ethnic groups. So there's our levels zero, one, two, and three. And those languages are all, all four of those languages are very safe because they're because they're not being because they're being used by different ethnic groups. People are learning them as at least as a second language to communicate with other people. When we work in language development and Bible translation, we're not doing pretty much not doing anything with those languages because our focus is on the languages that have higher levels of disruption and need more language development. So let's take the second group. We said, uh, how is the language being used? And the second answer was it's used by all ages in the home. And so the second question would be, how is it used in that context? If it's 
used as the language of education. Okay, so it's, it's, these are languages that are spoken in the home by all ages, but if it's also used as a language of public education, uh, formal education, then that would be a level four. We, we call that a level four, and it's a language of education. We're not talking about it being a subject, a school subject. You know, I could go to school and study French, but it's not my language of education. It's a, it's just a, a school subject. But if I go to school and all the teaching is done in French, then that would be my level, my language of education. So, if it's if it's used as the language of instruction for formal education, we've given it a level four and call it a, a language of education. If it has developing literacy. That is, there's a writing system, and there are some people who read and write the language, then it's a level five. It's not the language of education, of uh, teaching in, in classrooms, but it is maybe if, for example, if it even has, is a subject of, it's a school subject where you can study, learn to speak that language in a class, and, but it's not the main language of education, then it would be a level five with developing literacy. Number six is divided into 6A and 6B. We said that this second group is uh, the language is being used by all ages at home. If it's used by all the children in the home, that is all children are learning it and using it in their homes, then it's a 6A. And that is a language with vigorous orality. And if it is uh, only some of the children that are speaking the language at home, then it is 6B, and that's the first level of endangerment. It's a threatened language because not all the children are learning it. This kind of becomes the, the harbinger of bad news. This is a sign of endangerment. When not all the parents are teaching the language to their children in the home, that's the first level of the language being threatened. Yeah. Now, before you go on, how do you distinguish, let's say you're you're in a place like Equatorial Guinea and you, you go to 10 homes and they all say all the kids learn the language in our home. And then you go to 10 other homes and they say that they don't because that's that's the reality. A lot of a lot of these things are mixed. So how do you guys deal with those sorts of mixed answers? Yeah, well, that's a good point. Um, if, if you find... 10 out of 10 that say yes, and then you go somewhere else and 10 out of 10 that say no, you're probably dealing with two different uh, speech communities. So we've said that the unit, of, the unit of work in language development is a speech community. If you go to a rural area in the interior of Equatorial Guinea, for example, your example, um, 10 out of 10 are going to be speaking Fang. But when you get into the city, in the urban areas where everything is done in Spanish and you've got all these different ethnic groups that are communicating with each other, you might have 10 out of 10 where even if the parents speak Fung, the children are not using it hardly at all. So, so that's two different speech communities. And we did say that different speech communities that have – okay, that, that, that share a, a same language community – uh, can have different vitality levels in different speech communities. In other words, the language community in this case is Fung. The speech community is not just Fung. The speech community might be just Fung in the interior, but it can be Fung in Spanish and French and a whole bunch of other languages in the in the ur- in the rural. I mean, the urban context. So the speech community is looking at a whole ecology of languages, all the languages that are spoken by that community and interchanged in the, in the course of a day or commonly in communication within that language, uh, within that speech community. So you're, pro- you're probably looking at what you're describing sounds like we're talking about two different speech communities, and that happens very frequently. Now, what if you were in a village and you got mixed answers? Would you go with the majority of of those answers, or how would you weigh that evidence? No, even if even if nine, even if you know eight or nine people out of ten tell me that all the kids are speaking it, if one or two families say no, they're not speaking it in my home, then it's clearly a six B. It's a threatened language okay. because uh, those those families that say everybody speaks it, well, that at least means they speak it in their house, you know, but they don't necessarily know that there's two families over there in their same community that are not speaking it. And, okay. and sometimes, Andrew, a Bible translation needs uh, assessment can be based on the fact that even if the people in the city 
the Fung people in the city, to use the example of Fung in Equatorial Guinea, they may not need or use the scripture, but maybe the Fung people in the country and, and in the uh, right. rural areas might really need one, especially if they're monolingual. Yeah. I, I guess one thing I, I, I'd like to clarify, too, for, for people listening is that a language can be an official language recognized by the government, but not a language that they would use for education. Because that that might be surprising to some people. <laughs> no, that's a no. good that's a good distinction. That's kind of important because um, when we talk about these egids, um, the egids scale, it's it's somewhat hierarchical, where it you know builds where if you're if you're at a level, you should be at all the levels down below, right? But sometimes there's a distinction between the egids level in terms of orality. And the egot's level in terms of literacy. So, in terms yeah. of in terms of orality, Fung has been an official language, a level one official language of Equatorial Guinea in the past. But they didn't even ever have a writing system at that point. So, so Fung was right. a level one in terms of orality on the egot scale. But in terms of literacy, it wasn't even a a level five developing literacy. It was a totally oral language. So and forbidden when you're at school to use Fung, which is crazy. Yeah. Although I'm not sure. I think that was uh, that might have been less of an issue during the few years after independence when the first president declared Fung an official language. I'm not sure that they got punished as much as the minority groups. There were a lot of minority languages that got you know really punished if they used their other language at at home. But oh, right. anyway. Yeah. It was only yeah. a few years. It was only a few years that Equatorial Guinea had Fung as the quote-unquote official language, and it, it's it's complicated. Yeah, I see. yeah. So going back to our Rapids appraisal questions, uh, the third the third answer was some of the ages are using some age levels are using it at home as a heritage language. So then you'd have to ask what what is the age of the youngest speakers? And we've already looked at level six B was when some of the children are not using it. But let's say if if none of the children are speaking it, it's a level seven and it's a fully endangered language by UNESCO standards. If none of the children now are learning the language, or, or almost none of the children are learning it. If if the parents of childbearing age are not using the language, but only the grandparents then it's a level eight, and it's called a moribund language. That means it's on its way out. If only yeah. if only a handful of great-grandparents speak the language, I'm sorry, that, that last one was not eight. It was 8A. The eight is divided into A and B because in order to fit in all the UNESCO levels of endangerment. So if, if only the grandparents speak it, it's an 8A moribund. If only a few great-grandparents speak it, it's an 8B, which is almost extinct. And there's very little that can be done to reverse that situation when it gets that bad. And then the last, the last one in that, in that bunch is if nobody is speaking the language fluently anymore, that would be the language is used – uh, some parts of the language are used for identity purposes, and, it, and they might be very important to people to use certain greetings or leave-takings or certain rituals or certain songs or stories or things that are part of their identity. Then it's uh, a symbolic a symbolic use of the language or an identity use of the language. It's used for for identity but not used as the main vehicle of communication. The last answer that they could give on that first question, how is the language used, if they say the language is no longer used, then you'd have to ask. So it's going to be a level 10, but we have 10A and 10B because there's a big difference between a language that was documented and is a classic historical language like Egyptian hieroglyphics. We know how it was written. We can read it and we can... People can read it and write it, but nobody even knows how it was spoken. <laughs> and so that would be a if it's if the the, the the second question in that group would be how uh, was the language documented? If the language was documented, then it's a classic language. It's called a, these are both extinct languages, but we can have extinct languages that are a classical language like Egyptian hieroglyphics or Phoenician or some of these languages that were written and documented. And then they're sustainable. Historically, they have a sustainable level, but they're not just like a lost, forgotten language. 
if the language was never documented, then it would be a 10B, and it would be basically a completely forgotten language. So that's absolute maximum maximum disruption and zero vitality. So then when we look at these 10 uh, levels or 14 levels with the A's and B's, we can also see that there are certain levels of language use that are sustainable levels. And if you, uh, our focus in language development is focusing on, we use this, uh, a book that was written, textbook that was written by Paul Lewis and, and Gary Simons called Sustaining Language Use. Uh, perspectives on community-based language development. So sustaining the sustaining uh, sustainable use model of language use and language development is the theoretical underpinning of our sociolinguistics language development work. In that book, he talks. They talk about the four levels of sustainable language use being uh, sustainable history. If the language, if it's a 10A, like a well-documented extinct language, like Egyptian hieroglyphics. Sustainable identity is a level nine where they use the language, important parts of the language for unity, for identity, to, to relate to each other and to identify themselves as a, group, as a community. Uh, sustainable orality jumps back up to 6A where all the children in every home are using the language at home. If all the children are learning and using the language, then it's a, then it's a sustainable orality. The last level of sustainability is, or the highest level is sustainable literacy, and that's level four when the language is being used as the language of instruction in formal education. When we're working with a language community and they're at some level of endangerment, if you're at a 6B, 7, 8A, 8B, 9, you're, you're in there in the middle um, where the language is slipping from generation to generation, it's like climbing a cliff. You, you, you can't, you got to go up or down, but you can't just stay on the side of that cliff. The tendency is that it's going to go down if you don't do something to reverse it. But if we can work with a community and help them to work toward these sustainable levels, like say we're going to try to establish sustainable orality or eventually maybe sustainable literacy, that is what we would call language development. If they're already sliding down the slope and it's, it's, their, their numbers are too reduced and there's just no way to reverse it, we can help a community to have a kind of a soft landing by focusing on sustainable identity and sustainable history. Let's document your language so that it'll be there for, so that no, it won't be lost to you know, the patrimony of humanity. But let's also focus on what things, what aspects of your language are important for you in terms of your identity, and let's focus on developing those things. So like in the United States, I'm a member by blood of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma because my grandmother was Choctaw, and um, Choctaw has um, a few thousand speakers. Some are uh, a handful of older mother tongue speakers. Most are probably second generation speakers now learning it in the high schools and things, but but Choctaw has 80,000 members, and most of them are not using the language, um, are not fluent at all, and maybe never were in the language. But they they use uh, they have a strong level nine sustainable identity because they use a lot of their language of the Choctaw language in the uh, Choctaw newspaper and the calendars they put out each year and the Christmas decorations they send out to us and different things. There's a there's things about the language that are important to the Choctaw identity, and that's yeah. uh, sustainable identity level nine. So, so these are if we're focusing on those bottom levels of sustainable identity and sustainable history, we're not really doing language development as much as identity development. Well, we've talked about this before. There's a huge bottleneck with consultants, and um, there's just not enough to go around to come and do a workshop on you know, helping people think through these things. And so if somebody wasn't able to get a consultant like you to come down and help them in a language group, what would you counsel them to do step by step? What can they do themselves to get a, a better grasp of how the language is doing and also help the language community plan for their language's future? I would say... Um, a language community that's wanting to develop their language, uh, it would be worth contacting uh, SIL in the nearest uh, the nearest SIL to them because SIL 
even if they even if they aren't close enough to have uh, consult access to consultant involvement, uh, SIL could give them some resources. Uh, there is a book that SIL puts out free on their webpage called Guide for Planning the Future of Our Language. If you just type in Guide for Planning the Future of Our Language, you'll find the, it'll, a link to SIL. And that book is downloadable in uh, several languages in Spanish, English, French, Portuguese, some other languages. That's one resource that SIL has made available free to communities. We also offer, uh, this does involve consultant uh, work, but we offer uh, a series of uh, workshops called Our Language and Identity Journey. And so that is, um, after having offered the guide for planning the future of our language and realizing the communities still kind of got hung up on some of the steps and needed some more, maybe some more uh, of somebody walking with them through it, we developed this uh, workshop series we have a, a global task force on language develop, community-based language development, and in that task force, we developed this workshop series called Our Language and Identity Journey. It's four phases. The first three are workshops. The first phase would be, say, over a weekend, maybe a Friday, Saturday, would be community awareness, some of the things that we're talking about in the sustainable use model and vitality levels and things. The second phase is community evaluation, where they get an in-depth evaluation of their own language and where they're where they're at and where they maybe you know just levels of vitality and, and factors of disruption and things. The third phase is called uh, community planning, and in that they uh, look at where they want to be on the EGIDS levels, on the vitality levels of uh, which level of sustainable use do they want to work toward. And then how are we going to get there? What are the steps? What are the areas that they need to work on to get there? That's where we talk about the conditions, the functions of the language, the acquisition of the language, the motivation of people to use the language, the environment around the language, including political environment, and then uh, level of diglossia, which is diglossia is a sociolinguistic description of a situation where a community uses two different languages, one for sort of high forms and one for low forms, one for the high forms meaning the formal use of education and government and the the lower forms would be what you'd speak at home and maybe in the in the bar or the restaurant or whatever. In order for a small language to survive next to a major world language or a national language that's really strong and dominant, it you almost need to find a level of diglossia where certain functions are important enough to the community where they're going to reserve uh, those functions for the mother tongue or for the language, what we call language one, the, the, you know, the first language. So you have situations, even whole countries that are that are diglossic, like Paraguay has uh, now has two official languages, Spanish and Guarani, and Spanish was the high form that was formal for government and education and things, and Guarani was the low, quote unquote, low form, which was for non, for the informal functions. But it became important enough to the identity of the Paraguayan people that they made them both official languages. And now Guarani is getting more and more developed and it becoming a language of instruction in the schools and things like that. So in terms of Bible translation, so SIL, we've been talking a lot about you know going into communi- communities to help them have a soft landing for the death of their language or helping people maybe maintain an equilibrium if their language is endangered, but not necessarily resurrect it to the full vitality that it once enjoyed. But is there a percentage, rough percentage of how many groups is SIL working with just to kind of help them document and and sustain their language, but without the hope of Bible translation necessarily in their language? And then how many is SIL working with that have more vigorous use of their language and they're, and they're working towards the Bible translation? Those, those are good questions. There's a, a series of charts that were developed by Gary Simons, the editor of the Ethnologue. He presented at, the, uh, at a conference in Hawaii on the, the International Conference on Language Documentation about, uh, about how languages in the world are moving, and more and more languages are moving down the scale in terms of less vitality, higher disruption, 
um, the the fulcrum of balance on this 13 points right in the middle is 6a that is vigorous or orality where everybody in the in every age group speaks the language that's kind of the default of a language even if it's never had any development official lang modern language development in literacy and that kind of stuff going on the default is that it be spoken by everybody in the community so that's kind of the middle of the equilibrium the middle of the seesaw so to speak and i would say more and more languages are going on the endangered side sil has historically not worked very much at all with just helping them helping a community to document their language that is working only towards sustainable history there's we have a language documentation department that's very small very few members and um okay. they i would say we're working with quite a few communities toward sustainable identity whether they want to or not, even if they want to have sustainable orality or sustainable literacy, a lot of them are just too far gone to be able to move back up the, the ladder. And so uh, in some cases, unfortunately, in some cases, the, the community's perception of sustainable identity includes having a Bible translation on the shelf, even if nobody can read it or, or speak, you know, even speak the language kind of a thing. So that's not a very good uh, – that is not – uh, a good answer to help a community have sustainable identity. We don't invest a million dollars in 25 years or 20 years of Bible translation so that somebody can have a book on their shelf that they can't read and have no interest in reading. Uh, one of the things we say yeah. is, one of the things we say is, don't put a literacy band-aid on an orality problem. Uh, if the okay. if the community is not using the language, they should not make the effort to translate the Bible, what they need to do is focus on focus on their orality, on getting all the kids to use the language. Maybe if the if the parents are not going to teach the language in 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 the homes, then the only hope they might have as a community of reversing it is going to uh, the schools and getting the schools to teach the language to the kids in school because they're not being taught the language at home. Now this has happened. It's not. The statistics are not very great about languages turning this thing completely around, but right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so let me ask you this: Let's say you're you're working on a translation, and in the midst of the translation, you notice that the language begins to slip into the endangered side of this of the fulcrum that you described. What do you do at that point? A lot of these languages are in danger before they ever even start the translation. And sometimes they're thinking that I want I want a New Testament in my language just because the neighboring group has one and they have all the prestige of that. And sometimes they, they might not even think of their language as a language because it doesn't have a writing system. It, we're just a dialect. We're just a whatever. But if we can get a, yeah. a writing system and a New Testament. So what I would say is this, we, we shouldn't approach Bible translation with an all or none attitude. We shouldn't assume that it's either, you know, the whole Bible or the whole New Testament or nothing. Um, limited goals projects are a good idea initially, especially in a, in, a, in a situation where the language is tentative. It's somewhat endangered and we don't know which direction it's going to go. We can start maybe a minimal goals project for a language community to have Bible storying uh, in their language, which is something that you you kind of integrated the whole idea of uh, in Equatorial Guinea with the project you worked on with uh, oral Bible storing, where you were actually doing scripture with uh, or or from an orality approach. But the, the oral Bible storing is a good way to start. See how people are going to respond, and then I would say. If you're going to do actual translation, you could certainly do a Luke project and give the Gospel of Luke and the Jesus film and not necessarily be committed to doing a whole New Testament until you see if the people are actually going to use the scripture that they have. And if they use the book of Luke yeah. and they want more, then then work work with them and help them and get people trained or whatever they can they get have the New Testament. And if they want more, they'll work toward having the Old Testament. So a gradual evolving approach that as they use the scripture they have, they can you work with the community, the community can work with SAL and others to, to try to get more. It shouldn't just be done unilaterally by ex, sure. expat linguists sure. who are Bible translators who are motivated to give the scriptures whether or not people are ever going to use them. That's not the answer. Yeah. So that's a good word. I, the more I, I speak to outsiders, so maybe people who are interested in 
supporting Bible translation. They're not they're not linguists or trained or anything, but a lot of people are starting to understand the language language extinction issue, the language endangerment issue from the outside. And I hear a lot of people having these doubts and I'm wondering how is SIL is SIL trying to communicate with donors, inform donors so that they can understand okay, we're we're not going in blind to do these translation projects. We're, we're not just saying, oh, well, this language group wants a project, so we're going to give it to them and spend millions of dollars, even if their language is going to die out in 10 years. You know what I'm saying? Is, is, is SIL actively trying to help educate people in that sense? The whole thing of language vitality is such a young science. When we talk about the first published scale of uh, objective scale of language vitality being 1991, we're talking 30 years ago so SIL had already been doing SIL had already been doing 40 year uh, 50 years of Bible translation before anybody even made a scale to evaluate language vitality so so yeah we're catching up we're playing catch up too but where SIL is is learning and growing is that the starting point is working with the community so that the community understands their language vitality and the uh, trajectory of their language right but I, I obviously, you know, this is something that sneaks up on pretty much every language community, and they never anticipate it until it's too late. So that's, you know, that's one of the things too that uh, worries me. That often these these language communities, they have that strong desire, but they're often looking at their their own vitality through rose-colored glasses. Yeah, and and SIL, we as we as people who are passionate about God's word and the languages of the world can be can look at it through rose-colored glasses too, and we can put uh, too much value on on the translated scriptures without putting enough value on the, the importance of literacy. If if translation provides the scriptures for a people group, literacy provides the readers for that scripture. So so it's not enough. Sure. It's not enough to just have a handful of scholars who can read and write the language and produce the translation. You need to have uh, people reading and writing in that language as well. Yeah. Well, let me just raise one more concern and and just see what you think about this. One thing that I'm concerned about is that communities realize there's a lot of money to be had in Bible translation for um, these projects, uh, whether they're limited goals projects or or whatever from the outside. So the tendency that I see is, or the temptation is for the community to want to be extra positive about the, the state of their language for the sake of prolonging a project because of the the funds that would be coming in. Yeah, maybe you could speak to that. I don't know that it's a I don't know that it's a huge factor or a huge concern because these funds that you're talking about don't usually impact the community. They usually impact a, a handful of people. Sometimes it's one mother tongue translator or it's a small committee of three or four or five people. So we're not talking about a huge number of people impacted by the funding of Bible translation. But when we do these, this is why SIL is making the move toward community-based language and identity development, is when the community is involved in making the decisions, there should be a whole lot more than three or four people in the community who are in these sessions and and doing this journey and, and making these decisions. So it's really interesting when you get into a journey context and you're talking about the vitality of the language to see the community struggling with, as a group, with where is our language at and where are we going. One of the directions that SIL has gone, which is really good, is that we've shifted away from a focus on a language just in in isolation, and we're focusing on the unit of work being a speech community, which has an ecology of languages, which might be very, normally in this day and age, is very multilingual, and we look at all of the languages. In, when, in these sessions, we're not talking about one language. We're looking at all the languages that they use and what do they use this language for and what do they use that language for? What are the different languages used for in different contexts? Here's, here's another thing, though, that I, I tend to see more often than not is that more and more partners in Bible translation, let's say Faith Comes by Hearing or, or others, their their priority is we need to get to the the gospel into these communities right and then the vehicle for the gospel is the word of god 
So the language vitality or the, the state of the language is a secondary consideration for them in that urgency to get the gospel to these people. And so you go to a community, and obviously if the gospel has not impacted that community significantly, most of the community will be in opposition to the gospel. That's the truth here in most of the villages of Mexico. Um, most most of the communities at large will be in opposition to the gospel, and there will be a very small contingent, and maybe even just a few people, the few people who will want to be the translators involved, they'll be the only people who are expressing a desire for the translation and calling upon a funding organization like Seed Company or Faith Comes By Hearing to come and do a project. So what is Faith Comes By Hearing going to do? Well, there's that emotional dilemma. Like These people are begging for us to do a translation among them. We have millions of dollars that are being thrown at us for Bible translation. We need to do something with them. And here are these people begging. It's not the whole community for sure. It's just this one little church and, you know, they're, they're a couple of leaders and maybe a couple other people who want to to get a, a limited goals translation done. So that, that's the kind of situation that I see more often than not. So you can't just say, well, the whole community, you know, will gain a, a, a good understanding of what the whole community wants. Um, they may be very opposed to it, you know. So I'm wondering what you would say to that situation. Well, I see the importance of community decision in in things like language development and orthography and Bible translation. I really believe in the value and the importance of the community holding the reins and the control of what happens with their language. But I also wouldn't go to extremes on that because when I look at history, um, there are a lot of situations where the history of a people group was radically changed by a Bible translator who was obedient to God's calling in spite of tremendous persecution. I mean, John Wycliffe was fortunate. He was only he only got fired from his job at Oxford, and he got posthumously excommunicated. But somebody like Casiodora de Reina in Spain got exiled from Spain at on you know pain of death. He became uh, was hunted by by the leadership of the Inquisition. They wanted to kill him, and they tried to kill him right. in a couple places in in other countries in Switzerland. He ended up fleeing to England. So so there are many many cases in history where. The community was not only not involved in the decision, but the community was adamantly opposed to having scripture. And I would say, especially in cases where, where you have, uh, you know, a strong uh, Buddhist or Islamic or whatever religious influence that might be very opposed to the gospel, do not let that be the only factor. Do not let the community's desire be the only or the main factor in determining whether or not these people should have the scripture because fulfilling the great commission means giving it to everybody and including everybody in fulfilling that, that mission. So I I am, while I believe strongly in the importance of the community in making decisions like how they're going to write their language and what direction they want to go with their language and all, I also would say, Hey, if the community is opposed, especially on spiritual grounds, that should not be the deciding factor. Yeah. So so maybe you could counsel me on this. My my tendency is to feel like the idea uh, of, you know, involving the whole community and making it community driven sounds more like a marketing ploy to get people excited about what's going on in Bible translation. But the reality on the ground in most situations is that that's that's not really something that's <laughs> that's working out because the community may be opposed or what I've seen more often than not is it's just totally apathetic. Like they couldn't care less either way. So then what do you do in those situations? So more and more I get this feeling like from my, my own experience, it's very limited. We tend to put the community talk kind of forward to the donors to say, hey, look what we're doing. It's it's so great. Then when we get to brass tacks, I guess, we all of a sudden realize, okay, we've got to make some compromises here. I don't know if that's a fair assessment. Yeah, well, it's, it's really an interesting question, Andrew, because uh, there are so many stories of communities that had no awareness of their need for translation or of the impact it was going to have on them until they had the scriptures. So I read one I read one just the other day that was kind of cool where 
they, the, the translation committee translated the Lord's Prayer, and then the uh, consultant came in and apparently spoke the language well enough that he was reading it back to them, and he read it to the whole committee that had just translated it. And when he got done, it was just absolute silence, and they didn't. Nobody said anything. They all had their heads down, and and he goes, "Is is something wrong?" And one of the guys, the main translator, he says, "We all learned the Lord's Prayer, El Padre Nuestro. We all learned the Lord's Prayer in the national language years ago, but today our Lord has taught us how to pray." So a lot of times the community is going to be very uh, unaware and unmotivated and apathetic and not involved at all until they have scriptures and then it can, it, God can work. With the uh, the Apalai people where my, my mother and father-in-law worked for decades, um, they were not receptive to the gospel until after they had the New Testament dedicated. I remember going to the New Testament dedication in 1986. There was a very strong, a very small church. It was, uh, the church was... It seems to me like there were, you know, maybe less than 50 people in the church. It was not a very strong movement at all until after they had Scripture. And then is when the Holy Spirit really began working in a lot of people's lives. And now they're very strong. They have Bible conferences, and they send missionaries, and they bring in other language communities to their Bible conferences and stuff. So, yeah, and they have the whole the whole Bible now, yeah. Yeah, that's so true, and that's why it's hard for me to— wrap my mind around the whole, you know, focus on community first. And uh, that it sounds kind of like a, a lot of hype that doesn't turn out to be reality most of the time. Anyway, this has been really helpful. I think uh, a lot of people will gain a lot from this conversation and discussion. So thank you for taking the time to, to share with us all of these things that you've learned over the years and insights and information appreciate it. Well, thank you, Andrew, for the invitation. And uh, you and Bethany are very special to us. And uh, you you were involved Thanks. in our team before you met Bethany. And we were excited to see the Lord bring you together and now give you a beautiful daughter and, and expand your ministries in Bible translation and consulting and Hebrew teaching. And so we're really excited about what God is doing through you guys. 